Hello and welcome to another episode of the Generosity Freak Show. I'm your host, Brady Josephson. And on today's episode, I'm joined by John Jensen. He's the Senior Director of Nonprofit Insights at Salesforce.org. And in this episode, we get into John's career, which is long and vast and a focus on digital data research, which is great. So uh, he shares a little bit more about his own experience and what he's seen. And then we dive into some research that we did in partnership with Salesforce.org where we made uh, online donations, signed up for email, and tracked email communication for 90 days from 635 organizations in nine countries. We talk about some of the differences between Canada and the US, some of the issues that we ran into in Brazil and Mexico, how Australia fits into the mix, and then just some more global general uh, insights into online fundraising and digital as it relates to today. So thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. Welcome to the freak show, here we go. It's just another freak show, here we go. I said, Welcome to the freak show, here we go. It's just another freak show, here we go. Welcome to the freak show, here we go. It's just another freak show, here we go. Welcome to the freak show, here we go. It's just another freak show, here we go. Hey, John, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for inviting me, Brady. All right. So we're going to dive into uh, research, something that you're very familiar with, and sales, uh, Salesforce-specific research that we've done with you. But before we get into that, uh, I want to hear a little bit more about kind of like your, your own journey. I was uh, creeping on your LinkedIn to try to figure out uh, where did this guy come from? What did he do before uh, I started getting to know him on this research project? But you've got tons of experience in, de- in digital and particularly around like research and data. So A, can you just walk us through a little bit of, of your journey? And then two, I'd love to know uh, like a, a key trend or change that you've seen over time. Yeah, I mean, I would, I would summarize my career as essentially being all about helping uh, people understand uh, the data associated with what their activities are, de- depending on you know what the industry is, right? So I started. I got a master's degree in political science, and towards the end of that, I thought I should take something that you know would be kind of useful, and so I took some <laughs> statistics classes, and I ended up getting uh, working in one of Canada's largest market research firms, doing focus groups and survey research, etc. Then I got into the uh, what was then the internet sort of uh, bubble, doing internet research, um, the very beginnings of web analytics, et cetera. Uh, then a separate company that um, developed market research tools uh, that ran on the web. And so I was uh, running technology there, uh, did some startups, uh, and uh, eventually joined um, uh, Mozilla as uh, initially doing sort of competitive analysis and then uh, ran the data science team, and then uh, be, sort of got into corporate strategy, uh, and did that for a number of years, and then uh, have ended up at, at Salesforce, where um, I'm. My my remit here is to worry about the longer term trends in the industry that can help inform the way that we talk about our products to our customers, mm-hmm. and potentially inform which products we make in which order, etc. And that's sort of what's the the path that's brought me here. Yeah, no, it's that's cool. I just um, whenever you see folks that have spent that amount of time in digital, I'm always so curious to know like what is maybe one of those bigger trends that you have seen or that you like looking forward see like hey here's you know an evolution of of digital that everyone should be concerned about or worried about or, or aware of. 
Well, to some extent, what we are seeing now is something that at least was uh, to me was sort of apparent a long time ago that uh, data was getting cheaper. You know, hard drives are getting cheaper and we're and there's way many more touch points for people to create data via the web, via their smartphones, et cetera. And the store, and the fact that as more of it being created and it's cheaper to store means that there's going to be increasing opportunity and demand for understanding it. Um, hmm. It's accelerated to such a, a, an extent recently, though, that um, I've, I've, that has been surprising uh, to me. Um, the most in-demand uh, types of uh, uh, specialists in, in technology are A, uh, uh, computer security folks, but B, uh, data scientists. <laughs> and um, a lot of the techniques that I studied 20 years ago have been vastly updated and, and, and supplemented <laughs> with machine learning, et cetera, and are now yeah. being uh, employed not just on large-scale data science problems at credit card companies or something, but, you know, in restaurants, right? It's, uh, right. it's kind of amazing. Yeah. No, I, I know for, for sure on our side, just as we've grown the company, you know, like normally agencies, you get account managers and copywriters and things like that. And we still need those folks, but yeah. the data side of the house just continues to grow because like, well, we don't know what to write. So what does the data tell us what to write? So, you know, building up more and more of that. And then on our side, on the research too. Um, so speaking of research, like this, this project wouldn't be possible without you. So thank you so much for all your help and work, you know, on this project that we've done. Can you share a little bit more about maybe Salesforce in case there are people that don't know what Salesforce is or maybe how Salesforce relates to the nonprofit sector, but a little bit more about Salesforce and then um, why you wanted to do this research in partnership with, with us at Next After. Sure. So uh, I work in Salesforce.org, which is the nonprofit uh, part of uh, Salesforce. It's a fairly large group, uh, about a thousand employees or so. Uh, we, we do a couple of, uh, of things. One is this is uh, an area where we create technologies for the nonprofit sector uh, and work with nonprofits around the world. There's 50,000 or so who work with uh, Salesforce technologies. We also are working on uh, technologies for businesses to help support nonprofits. That's called Philanthropy Cloud. We also have a fairly large division that uh, creates software for the education sectors. Uh, uh, which quite often is nonprofit as well. Uh, and it is part of that. Uh, we were, uh, it's part of that. The, one of the core, um, uh, challenges associated with any nonprofit is fundraising. It's one of the, is one of the central, uh, digitally driven now aspects of running uh, a nonprofit. And it's one of the core uh, parts of our offering. And so what we've decided what we decided to do was partner with Next After on um, helping support a, a simple, you know, experimental kind of study where you just go and sign up for uh, for relationships with different nonprofits, make a donation, and sort of see what happens to get a greater uh, authentic sense of what's actually happening in this sector. I like how you said it was uh, simple. I don't think that was quite my, my experience <laughs> simple for of, me. Uh, uh, <laughs> yeah, of the research project. But yes, it is a simple concept. Yes, I yeah. agree. Um, well, one of the, the things, I mean, you're in Canada, in Vancouver, where I used to be from until, you know, recently we were talking about some, some hockey before, which made me feel nostalgic about being in Canada. Um, 
but now we're in the U.S. and Salesforce is obviously huge in the U.S. Uh, so you know a lot about the Canadian and U.S. market, and that's the majority of our listeners. So when you look at Canada and the U.S., I get this question a lot when people find out like I'm Canadian in the U.S. But like, what's the biggest difference between Canada and the U.S. when it comes to philanthropy? And like, how would you answer that question? Um, so you know, there's the obvious. You know, Canada's smaller, it's about you know one ninth the size. Um, it, Despite that, uh, the the nonprofit sector in Canada is actually a fair bit bigger as a proportion of the economy than it is in the U.S. It's about six percent or so of GDP in the U.S. It's about nine percent in Canada. Um, that's partly because a number of um, parts of our healthcare system and education system are delivered essentially via government contract with nonprofits, and so that kind of affects things. I, I would say that generally, um, it's you know as a, as in Many things. <clears throat> it's similar to the U.S., um, but not as um, not as amp- not as uh, at, to a, such a heightened degree, right? So, mm-hmm. um, uh, there's one of the drivers of philanthropy and of uh, nonprofits generally is the level of income inequality in countries, and the level of income inequality in Canada is a bit lower than in the U.S., and that has a that has an effect on both the number, the demand for nonprofits, and for also the uh, the, the targeting in terms of who, where the where the funds uh, fund funds come from for nonprofits. Um, their governments, you know, government activity in the social sector is a bit higher in Canada than it is in the U.S., and that affects the mix of of nonprofits. But mm-hmm. overall, if I had to say, I mean, they're they're com- they're comparable. They're comparable. It's more, it's more, um, uh, because of probably possibly because of its size, it's more sort of developed in the U.S. You can go off to many universities to get a degree, and you know, and managing nonprofits or a degree in fundraising and those kinds of things. And that's sort of the case in Canada, but but much to a lesser degree. Yeah. Yeah, I think I think that's that's fair. I, uh, we had some some folks over for the the Super Bowl as we're recording this the day after the Super Bowl, which sucked, and um, they were asking that question to my wife, who's American uh, but is now a Canadian citizen. And the kind of answer she gave, and I think it's pretty good. It's like it's not like one big thing, you know. If you go to some like European countries, it's like well, clearly they speak a different language or whatever it is. It's actually just like a bunch of small little things where Canadians are just like a little bit different. But it's a lot, like a little different here, a little different here, a little different here. And it kind of adds up to being a lot different because she was surprised at how different it was in Canada. And I think philanthropy is kind of the same. It's like, well, a little bit less aggressive in terms of communication frequency, a little bit less aggressive in terms of asks, uh, you know, a little bit more focus on recurring. It's just a little here, a little here, a little here. And then when you actually like kind of analyze it, it's like, yes, similar, but when you add it up, it is, you know, a little bit different actually, or actually a lot different, but in little ways along the way. Um, so now a couple countries that we included uh, in this in the study, like Australia and Mexico, uh, we've done a little research in, a little work in, but then we also included uh, Brazil, which I had no knowledge of uh, Brazil's you know nonprofit or philanthropic space. Um, what, why did you want to kind of include those different uh, countries in this in this study, um, and, and what do you know uh, in terms of their kind of philanthropic uh, situation? Well, uh, Brazil and Mexico in particular, I mean, they're large, kind of, I mean, they're well-populated countries with uh, with large populations, with somewhat nascent nonprofit sectors. Uh, the research that exists indicates that it's mostly hyper-local. Um, mm. it, 
you know, there's not a lot of sort of centralization, institution, institutionalization of uh, nonprofits, mm-hmm. and there's there's cultural differences as well. However, like we know from our corporate side, Salesforce.com, that you know those are growing markets for the other products that Salesforce sells, and mm-hmm. which indicates to me that there's um, there's a potential. Um, receptivity to, to starting to helping to grow the this the sector in in the country right similarly they have large mm. you know they have income inequality and which is one of the drivers of philanthropy and it just mm. seemed to to us that it was a relatively uh, you know small kind of a addition to the research uh, agenda to un- to better understand those countries but that would you know potentially pay off over time and, and it's easy for me to say because I, you know, the poor folks at Next After had to do all the work and trying to find to find people there. But <laughs> yeah, it was it was actually one of the most unfortunate parts about the study was we ran into a lot of different issues in in Brazil and Mexico, and so you know the sample sizes that we ended up. By the time you get like successful emails and the number of people that emailed us, or number of donations successful, and number of people that you know emailed us, the numbers were just so small we just couldn't in any you know real authentic way do analysis so we included it because it's it's a data point we want to help share as much as we can in mexico and brazil but to say organizations in mexico do this based off a sample size of eight you know that's that's insane you know we we shouldn't do that so it was cool to to get into and i think even just those metrics of success rate shows kind of maybe some of the the nascency of those markets which is interesting um is there anything that, that Salesforce or Salesforce.org is kind of up to in the Americas or Australia that people listening might be kind of like interested to know more about before we, we dive into some more details of the study? Yeah, I mean, we're always working on our fundraising solutions. We've recently recently launched Elevate, which is uh, an integration with our Salesforce platform that allows you to uh, handle donations directly on on your website or on your app to uh, to raise funds that you know integrates with Stripe and other kinds of payment providers. Um, that's the big that's the big focus for us right now. Yeah, that's that's huge because I know um, you know one of the big questions was always, well, does it integrate with with Salesforce? And now there's a question of, well. You can just use Salesforce. You don't have to integrate with Salesforce. It has its own, you know, way to do that. But also, your integrations are are robust. Um, cool. Well, into this the study a little bit. And again, you know, to kind of data folks, you much more than I. But talking about data points on a podcast isn't always the best, so people can just go download the study. But um, what maybe like yeah, eighteen percent, sixteen percent. What kind of uh, stood out to you? Um, just kind of looking at some of the the high level key findings. Did anything like jump out and surprise you? The um, the number of sort of basic things that I would have I would have thought that anybody would do, <laughs> like re- reply to an email, be able to accept a donation. There was, to be honest, I I thought there would be a number of metrics that would be ninety nine, one hundred percent for you know across the board, and there were very few <laughs> like that, and yeah. um that was a surprise it's it's one of the things that i always have to remind uh not not myself but people we work like we work in this technology world and we spend all our time online and zoom calls and using you know uh smartphones etc uh but many folks in nonprofit they don't you know they work in uh in a different environment where they're focused on helping people right like they don't think about technology and all these kinds of things and so it's it's incumbent upon us to help them uh to help them realize the potential of the of uh, the, the digital transformation that's on that's undergoing uh, across the world so 
Jesse uneven and um, in many cases uh, less than robust uh, approaches to digital fundraising was a surprise to me. Yeah, and you know it's it it comes out in every study that we do, whether it's a global one or Canadian one or U.S. one. Just how a lot of those basics aren't there, and it, it is it's part of the reason why we do the study. Is like there's really interesting conversations around like AI and machine learning and suggested gift arrays and blah blah blah, and that stuff is cool. It's very cool. It's very interesting, but like. 87% of organizations said thank you on the donation page, which means 13% did not. You know, like these yeah. are crazy, crazy basics. Like <laughs> it's, it's insane. You know, number of organizations that send no emails, like, like you said, like very, very simple basic things. And I think that is a huge void that technology can fill. Because I think at first it was like, well, let's build technology that's really like locked in. And then it was like, well, let's make it more flexible so you can do anything you want. And it was kind of like we gave people enough rope to like hang themselves because then it's like too complicated and what should be on this. And now when you look at a lot of useful technology, it's very kind of out of the box, really useful. So it's like, you know, even if you don't touch this, it says thank you and it's got tool tips. And, you know, it's, it's helping the user, the nonprofit, create a good experience without being like, well, why didn't you put thank you on your donation page? You know, I think that's a huge opportunity for folks like you that are building technologies to know here are the limitations and we can solve a bunch of these or get you halfway there, you know, with technology. So, yeah, it's, it's always fascinating to see the, the basics, the blocking and tackling maybe not getting done. Yeah, and, and also share the best practices that are associated with the technology uh, that we, you know that we produce. Right? No one is helped if people adopt the technology but don't use it to its full potential. It doesn't help them. Doesn't help others. And so it's important that we help uh, orgs understand uh, just the potential of what uh, what's what they have in their in their in their digital fundraising uh, quiver. Yeah, for sure. Uh, we already talked about kind of Canada and the U.S. a little bit, but the other one that kind of we, we studied and kind of gets thrown in there is, is Australia. Um, what, what do you know about Australia in terms of how it compares to, to Canada and the U.S.? Is it something kind of similar, you know, smaller, comparable, but a little bit different in a lot of ways? Or is there anything that's like really unique about Australia compared to U.S. and Canada? Uh, it's, an, it's another Anglophone you know, centric uh, countries, and I think uh, UK, Canada, USA, and, I, and to some extent New Zealand have similarities. And that regards it comes from it comes from a shared culture. Um, mm. The the sector in the in Australia, I, you know, looking from afar, um, I get the impression that um, it's it's being re uh, reapproached and reexamined by government. I think. An unclear or uh, standoffish approach to the sector, but it is is changing now. And uh, there's a there, I, every time I read material from from Australia, it's it's really about how the sector itself or the government uh, in partnership with the sector is looking to strengthen it and support it. Right in terms of everything from uh, government support to you know the the pandemic support, you know economic support, those kinds of things. Um, and so I I think that in Particularly in Canada, USA, and the UK, the nonprofit sectors are more organized and advocate for themselves and are integrated more into how uh, the governments make decisions. And I think that's still coming to the fore in Australia. Hmm. Yeah, interesting. Um, you know, one of the kind of data points that we use to compare and contrast is like email volume. And, you know, unsurprisingly for those of us that have, have looked at research in the past, but the U.S. email volume was significantly higher than every other country, but in particular European countries. 
And so, you know, is that one of the questions for you? I mean, you've done research, not just nonprofit, but for profit and Salesforce has tons of for profit. You know, is that a, is that a general trend that you see across, you know, oh, yeah. for profit nonprofit is that the email volume is just way higher? Oh, yeah. Uh, the U.S. has, a you know, for for a long time, uh, you know, it had the world's largest single market. Um, it had a postal system that was implicitly or explicitly subsidized by, you know, you know, forced lower rates, et cetera. And so the direct mail, this is before email, the direct paper mail sector was highly developed in the USA. Uh, hmm. and, and not just only for, you know, for catalogs and stuff, but for all sorts of marketing. And so that has largely transitioned over uh, to the digital realm where, um, uh, you know, there's a there's a culture and a history of driving more marketing via di- direct messaging via email, and that sort of has continued along. Um, it's it's more um, just more part of the of the culture, right? As one of the things that you know, pr- probably you as a Canadian as well. Like, I didn't grow up receiving dozens of you know junk mail and catalogs <laughs> every day right whereas in the u.s you get that stuff it's there's a lot more of it. it's just part of the culture we we just moved from vancouver to texas this year and i was astounded at the amount of junk mail that i received um it was it was crazy and so then the question is like well how did they get my information and you know, like data co-ops and the ability to, to get data yeah. is way easier in the United States than yeah. other areas. And so all these like data privacy rules and laws, and it's a huge conversation now. I mean, you look at like California, which is like very European, you know, restrictive, but that's one state and the power of the states. And like, it's a big challenging thing in the US. Uh, but yeah, I was, I was shocked at that. It was interesting that the parallels between direct mail and and email because we see for the most part what has worked in direct mail does for the most part work in, yeah. in email and we've basically seen digital natives and people that don't have a direct mail background don't have a direct response background basically have to relearn the way that it's like oh we just can't send nice f- f- fancy shiny looking emails and get donations like no like long form personal letters have always outraised you know the fancy glossy brochure and we see the same thing kind of in email the trick is you can remove some of the cost out, right? Like with direct okay. mail, everything is like so expensive. So it's all ROI. And so that mindset still kind of exists. And where we see the lack of that is really maybe on the cultivation side or just like, it doesn't cost you really, you know, quote unquote, cost you anything to send another email that just says, hey, here's a new um, update from the field in Zambia that, in a blog post that we thought you might be interested in. This is what your donation is doing. Cost you nothing. Whereas in mail, like, why would we send that? It costs X to send that, you know? Yeah. So that's where I think the, the mindset needs to shift a bit is just thinking about all the opportunity around email, whether it's personalization and frequency and segmentation and cultivation that um, you don't get as much in that kind of older school direct mail thinking, right? Yeah, it was only the – to pull this story along perhaps a little bit too much, but with direct mail, only the largest organizations could really ex- – do with a lot of experimentation, right? To create whatever 10 right. versions of the letter and send it out. Whereas obviously with, uh, with digital, you can be the tiny organization. You can, you can, you can experiment all the time and you should be right. Um, yeah. because the costs of doing so are almost zero. And, um, that's another thing that's easy to say, but that requires often sort of a level of, 
uh, technical support in terms of the tooling you're using. Like you need to have the, the software and the etc. In order to create the four different versions of the of the letter that you want to send out, and to keep track of them and understand which one's doing better and whether it's actually statistically significant. Like all that kind of stuff is it's actually fairly tricky. Yeah, yeah, and again, that's where technology and tools have have come a long way. Where like you know, Google Optimize is free, and as long as you have a decent Google Analytics setup, which a lot of nonprofits don't, but you know, yeah. you you can run a test tomorrow, and it'll tell you whether it's valid. Like tools have yeah. come a long way. Uh, there's still a, a level of knowledge about like, well, what do you test? That's what we're finding a lot. Is just because you can doesn't necessarily mean that you should. You know, that's a huge area now. True. And then there's just like the cultural side of of curiosity that we're really trying to, you know, extend is like best practice is great, but it's not a destination. Like we've achieved best practice. Therefore, you know, we're good. It's no best practice. Like it's just a better starting point, you know, uh, to then be able to build from. And we see a lot that it's like, well, if, if we can just find out what best practice is and do it, then we're good. You know, it's a bit of that scarcity mentality of sorts. So we're finding more of the cultural thing. I don't know if you see something similar. Yeah, I mean, there's a, there's also sort of a geeky term for this, like you know, you're you can optimize for a local minima, right? Where you just <laughs> where you you know you do a bunch of experimentation and you find something that actually works, but it's just you've just optimized yourself to a particular point that narrows your field yes. of view. Where actually, if you tried something completely different, you could find a completely different approach that will that'll do much better. And it's important that you always um, mix in a little bit of the maybe not the crazy, but the fairly different from what you've historically done, just as an experimental kind of basis to see if there's, if you fully understand the whole domain that you're trying to explore. Yeah, no, that's a great point. I like the use of local minima. I think that's the first time that's been used on the, on the podcast. <laughs> um, we, we talk about that as a, a radical redesign, that type of experiment. And it's often one of the first things that we do because, you know, if you're on the wrong path, you're just going to get slightly better at being on the wrong path. Yeah, <laughs> which exactly. is better it's better than being bad on the bad path but you're not even in the right direction and so that's where you know trying something radically different increasing cultivation volume send totally revamping a donation page whatever it might be a pretty radical test is often one of the best ways to a learn and b figure out like are you even on the right path so great great point um uh, we already kind of talked about Brazil and, and Mexico in terms of why they were included. Um, was that surprising that we had that, that kind of that many issues in terms of signing up and making donations or did anything else stand out there? Um, yeah, I mean, I didn't expect, perf- you know, uh, you know, complete ease and perfection, uh, but I didn't think it would be this problematic. Um, and so that that that's. Uh, that's disappointing, and uh, it's something that I think we should probably look at again, and you know, in a, in a few years or whatever. Um, yeah, th- th- there's more work to be done there than perhaps we anticipated. Yeah, and I mean, the the other thing that I know we've had multiple conversations as we went through the research is being very cognizant of you know North American bias, or we're based in the U.S. and in Canada, and so that's how the basis that we do the research, and it is what it is. Because uh, one of the big things that we we found is that um, a lot of nonprofits that we went to give to only accepted PayPal. Um, so in theory, they could accept a donation. It's just that's not part of our research methodology. Where we looked, you know, do they accept PayPal? But we made credit card donations. Those were our instructions across the globe, you know, to make donations via credit card. And if they only allowed you to go through PayPal in a personal way and not like an integrated payment way, then our researchers were like, well, 
this isn't the same way to give, so I can't actually complete a donation. So we do include the methodology, and that's why I think it is important that people read the methodology because it's yeah. not like you can't complete a donation to 60 70% of organizations in Mexico. No, not, not really. We couldn't because we were only giving through one way. If you connected your bank account, if you connected to a personal PayPal login, you know, if you use some local forms of giving that we hadn't run into, that number would go up. It's still lower, and there's still not the like availability of options that we have, or, or a lot of European countries have. So, you know, that that's where some of the nuance is kind of tricky, and again, why we share the methodology, and hopefully people read it. But oftentimes, it's you just grab the you know headline of like, oh, you could only complete donations, you know, twenty percent of the time in Mexico. Mexico sucks at completing donations, and it's not exactly true, although there's a grain of truth in there, right? Yeah, I mean, I well, worked for a little. Could, uh, I, I, I was just gonna say, I worked for a little while in the financial sector, and um, one of the things that uh, I quickly learned is that uh, the rest of the world does not rely on credit cards to the same degree that North America does, uh, and it, that that's increasingly be, becoming the case. It's not like they're spread. It's, it's getting. I don't know if I would describe it as worse, but it's like it's it's, it's becoming more the case over time, and so it's important. Um, to have a holistic definition of what online payment is in order for to do these kinds of studies. Yeah, and that's that's why we wanted to include like can you give via bank, can you give via PayPal yeah. or other ways. So we did have that as a data point. And the give via bank is one in the US that lags significantly and in my opinion there's no reason to not, you know, transaction rates are lower, donor retention rates are higher especially for recurring giving. Uh, we've ran experiments where we've added the option to give via bank or EFT and see no negative difference like there seems to be no downside and only upside. It's just a, a cultural and technology kind of thing. A lot of forms don't have that built in natively to say, give via bank. And Americans aren't really trained to say, yeah, just connect this directly to my bank account, like maybe Canada more so and definitely in Europe. But I think that's a massive growth area for nonprofits, especially as more we rely on recurring giving. All right. Well, we could talk about local minimums and minimas <laughs> and uh, recurring giving, you know, plans and strategies all day long. But uh, I appreciate you taking your time. People should download the report and we'll obviously send that out. But before I let you go, I'm interested in a couple uh, more personal John things uh, about you. So rapid fire. Um, what show are you watching right now? Uh, it's kind of embarrassing. I'm watching an old show from the 80s called The Sandbaggers. The Sandbaggers. Is it about golf? <laughs> no, it's a it's a spy show about MI6 hmm. fighting the Soviets from the 1980s, early, late 70s, early 80s. Is it is it on like Netflix or something? Is it good? Uh, yeah, I, I it's many people think it's uh, one of the best series of this type that's ever been made. Um, really? And yeah, it's very realistic. There's no James Bond kind of stuff. It's <laughs> it's just a lot of you know arguments in offices. Uh, it's that kind of thought. It's like there's very little, you know, hardly ever see a gun. Um, huh. Yeah, it, it's quite uh, intricate and interesting. And uh, I, I got a bunch of DVDs okay. and I quite like quite like it. There you go. Well, I love the, the spy genre, so I might have to check that out. Um, most used or favorite uh, app or website? I don't know most used, but I use a pair of sites that are run pair of pair of sites, not parasite, pair of sites <laughs> like, uh. <laughs> uh, that are run by the same group. It's one's, they're, one's called TechMeme, techmeme.com. It has news about the technology industry. Another one's Memorandum, which has news um, uh, about, about, mostly about U.S. politics. Uh, they're, they're 
sort of curated, automatically generated kind of sites that are updated in real time all the time. And you can get a great sense hmm. of what's going on in those two sectors from those two sites. Awesome. Good ones. Uh, favorite podcast? Can't say this one. Um, I'm quite enjoying right now one called The Skewer, which is put out by BBC. It's sort of a, it's really odd. It's a phantasmagoric sound mixture of sound bites from movies and the news with speeches from politicians it's that makes a satirical commentary on what's going on in the news it's pretty wild that is quite the the description it sounds wild <laughs> uh maybe you'll have, have to check that one out i do like uh satire especially like dry british uh satire on things so yeah you'd like it the, the skewer BBC. The skewer. All right. And then uh, last one, who's a, a person or organization that you think people should follow if they want to learn more about, you know, fundraising or philanthropy or the nonprofit space? Um, one that comes to mind, it, it's sort of another news site. I mean, uh, I, I'm learning and watching a lot of what's going on in the UK and a great site for that is uh, fundraising.co.uk, which essentially mm. aggregates all the, the news from the sector uh, the nonprofit sector, particularly from a fundraising perspective in the UK. And uh, hmm. yeah, I think that's a, it's a pretty good site and I go there quite regularly. Cool. Yeah. I mean, that's been one of the cool things about this project is finding the different, you know, resources in the UK or Germany or Australia to try and learn more about the, the sectors. And uh, that's definitely a, a good one in the UK. Well, John, thanks again so much for coming on today and all your work and help in making this this research possible. Um, if people want to learn more about you and salesforce.org, where can they go? Feel free to uh, go to salesforce.org, the website, or you feel free to contact me on Twitter or on send me an email. Yeah, I'm sure you'll put my info in, in the show notes. Will do. So uh, thanks again, John. Appreciate it. Thank you. Hi again, this is Brady, and I just wanted to say thank you so much for listening to the podcast. I hope you enjoyed that episode. If you'd like to listen to all future episodes or maybe go back and listen to some of our past episodes, you can do so by going to generosityfreakshow.com or you can search The Generosity Freak Show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, SoundCloud, pretty much wherever you listen to your pods. And uh, if you have any questions or a suggested guest or maybe you yourself would like to come on the show, we'd love to hear from you. You can contact us at podcast at nextafter.com that's podcast at nextafter.com and if you want to find out more about this vision to unleash the most generous generation in the history of the world and what we're doing at next after in terms of research resources and training you can find out more at nextafter.com that's nextafter.com thank you very much for listening and finally i have to say thank you to nathan hill our producer and mixologist this would not be possible without him so thank you nathan and thank you once again for listening 